Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. And I just want to get this out of the way, actually. I just want to talk about, like, just acknowledge that the Oscars are happening this weekend. <laughs> this podcast will be coming out on a Friday, and uh, the Oscars will be happening on Sunday. And The Verge will be covering them, but... Um, I think at this point there will be a post on our site uh, about alternatives to watching the Oscars because, you know, as, as, as you may know, there is some controversy surrounding the Oscars and perhaps how legitimate their claim is to reflect the best of film and how much they perpetuate a broken system that uh, excludes women and people of color, um, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, so there's there's. I feel like there are some alternatives to watching it. One one thing that has been proposed by the person who actually created the hashtag Oscar So White is to live tweet the film The Wood, um, which is is one one way you could go. You could also, um, I think, you know, the the post will point to some other films and shows that you can watch instead. So, yeah, there are a lot of alternatives. You could do yoga. You could go to a yoga class, depending yeah. on what time zone you're in. Get centered. You could, I mean, given how long the ceremony usually runs, you could probably write, produce, direct, and uh, release your own movie uh, on VOD. I think, yeah. I think that's possible. Um, you, could, you could certainly get a really dope vine going. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could produce the shit out of a vine. Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's going to be an interesting ceremony. You know, I, I, I think it's been a long time since we've had an Oscars that uh, an Oscar ceremony where there is such a kind of unified climate around a, a situation that it applies directly to the Oscars um, and, and applies to Hollywood in a very, very like there is. It's not even like an elephant in the room situation. I mean, it is the room. That is the setting that the Oscars are taking place in. And um, not the room, the movie. Um, but so it's going to be, I mean, if, if you do choose to tune in and, and have your Oscars party and do your pool and, and get uh, really drunk, uh, there will be plenty to watch and a lot of probably very interesting kind of indicators of the state of mainstream Hollywood around this issue. So I, I think I'm I'm excited for it in a in kind of more of a Schadenfreude way than I usually am. Uh, but <laughs> I'm 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 interested in what's going to happen. Well, and not so even including I, the the winners. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I, so I also have some news to preview for next week. Um, as many of you know, uh, Scott Kelly, uh, the astronaut, has been in space for almost a year now. He's coming back next week on I think March first. Uh, he's going to be compared to his brother, who is also an astronaut, but who did not spend the year in space. So we can sort of start to determine what space does to your body. Yeah. Because um, a year in space is a really long time, but it's only about a third of the time it takes you to get to Mars. <laughs> and if we're serious about getting to Mars, you know, you need to know what the risks involved are going to be. So this is probably going to be an important step in thinking about what the future of space travel looks like. Who's the more popular Kelly brother? I think Scott. I think Scott is the more popular of the two. Okay. Um, just by virtue of the fact that, you know, like the, the gorilla suit video that I think many of you saw. Uh, all of these cute videos he's been doing in space, I think, have really raised his profile where his brother has just been at home going about his life happily on Earth. <laughs> so, um, Wait, who is the guy who did... Uh, uh, Life on Mars, or 
Somebody did a... Wait, who was that? That wasn't either of the Kellys. Is that somebody I, else? I, I don't totally remember, but I think it might have been Scott Kelly. Let me... Okay. Quickly, just double check. Do they um, have like when they vet you to go up in space? Are they like be good at memes? <laughs> no. Um, oh no, it's Hadfield. It was Chris Hadfield. Yes, that's it. That guy is he? Is he the most popular? Is he like the most blockbustery of all the ISS guys? Uh, I don't know if he's the most blockbustery, but he's definitely got a Canadian's facility with memes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like consider oh, Drake. Man. Consider the guy in the suit. Um, that's that's got like a different crazy suit. I just, I feel like Canadians are really good at memes. I don't, (laughs) I'm sorry if I'm promoting hurtful stereotypes here. We should have brought in, we should have brought in Jameson Cox for this episode. He's in our Jameson and Ariel. I know, I know. (laughs) Our, 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 our Canadian squadron. Um, that's right. Um, well, that's exciting. Um, I, uh, I, I mean, I don't really have any other news other than what we're going to talk about later, but, um, I just wanted to a check-in uh we talked about this show a few weeks ago and i'm still watching it and it's still (laughs) immensely entertaining uh the people versus oj uh the american crime story on fx and there have been four episodes now it is um it is completely on the nose in a way that is hypnotizing um, there is a scene that opens this last this last episode where the Kardashian family goes in to get a last minute seat for lunch on Father's Day at a, at a hoppin Beverly Hills location. I think it's Chin Chin. I, I also I just love basking in all the '90s Beverly Hills. It's so <laughs> it's so weird. Um, and they they get a table instantly because he's been famous and been on TV and and uh, and Robert Kardashian lectures his children and says you know we're Kardashians we don't care about fame we care about being a good person and it's so like like giant <laughs> mallet just 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 hammering the topic home but it's also just I don't know it's somehow it doesn't feel hacky somehow it feels just like it feels like high art in a way. I can't explain it. I think there's something also about the show that I've noticed over time. I mean, I noticed this in the first episode, but it's really deepened how much watching it feels like watching like a TV movie that was made in 1994. It's got this sort of um, look and kind of warmness. And I mean, I don't think that it was shot on film, but it's got this sort of grit to it that feels very 90s. Um, it's the lack of budget that feels very 90s, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. I th- I think it's actually a pretty... I think it must be an actually pretty expensive show to make because you've got all these interiors that are just like very, you know, you couldn't have just used any interior. You have to actually dress it the way that something would look in the mid nineties, which is just a little bit askew from how it would look today. Um, And that's really interesting. But one thing that's great is that they don't have to fake like the courthouse and everything because that building still looks like that. Um, I think that's the same building. If you, if, uh, if you go to my Twitter account, Emily Yoshida, uh, at Emily Yoshida, the my banner is at the courthouse because I I think the interior of it is so spooky and kind of like 2001 or something. Um, so I don't know. I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of of the deep LA ness about it. Um, I think the the weird funhouse mirror thing of like you know now we're getting to the point where people in it are commenting on it and being like oh this this is accurate or this isn't accurate so. It's just a, an interesting happening that's going on on television. 
Um, and that's my that's my endorsement of. Uh, all right. Um, so we have another endorsement. We're just we're all about endorsing art this week that has nothing to do this with is, the, the Oscars. Yeah, we have this. Actually, this has very little to do with most of the news cycle. And actually, it's is this is going to be a bizarro podcast where I I talk about. Um, Movies and Emily is going to in a minute talk about science. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I went and saw a movie um, this week. It is uh, Stephen Chow's The Mermaid. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I can expect people to know who Stephen Chow is, which is a shame because Kung Fu Hustle. Yeah. I mean, I would say I'd say he's probably the most well-known Chinese director in America, like currently working. I'm gonna. I'm saying that off the top of my head, but I can't really think of anybody else right now. It is more well known, but yeah, like Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle were. He's, big. I mean, I love Kung Fu Hustle. <laughs> like, yeah. it is one of my favorite movies. And uh, there was like some stuff I saw on the internet that suggested that The Mermaid wasn't being promoted as well in the U.S. because Stephen Chow is directing and is not in front of the camera. Hmm. Um, I I can't speak to that. I don't really know. What I do know though is that it's the highest f- grossing film of all time in China, and they it made that um, record in two weeks. Yeah, uh, which is remarkably fast yeah I mean, um, it's basically become the star wars of uh of china and, that's right i mean also they don't care about star wars there <laughs> no i mean like this beat for furious seven yeah it says 431 million dollars in two weeks like the equivalent um so that's insane obviously yeah um i mean part of this is just that like chinese cinema is growing up and becoming its own thing but the thing that I would really like to point out to you is that this is an, like an environmentalist tale. And uh, I would not have guessed um, 10 years ago that the best-selling movie of all time in China is about falling in love with the environment because that is <laughs> what The Mermaid is about. I mean, it's really f- funny and goofy and there's a ton of stunts and pratfalls that don't even, you know, like a lot of the humor in there doesn't require translation. Yeah. Um, yeah but the, you... the plot of the movie is that this real estate developer falls in love with the mermaid who is sent to assassinate him. <laughs> because he's his, his real estate development is destroying her family's home. Right. So it's Fern Gully. It's Fern Gully, except that here's the amazing part. You know how a lot of these movies have like the environment takes its revenge? Uh-huh. I'm going to spoil this only a little because it's impossible to spoil the pratfalls unless you see them. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but it's pretty clear from the beginning that everything's going to turn out all right by the end. And uh, the movie ends with him swimming in the ocean surrounded by fish. Um, mm. And it opens with with very uh, news footage, essentially, of stuff draining into the water, of people beating dolphins to death, like all of these like environmental tragedies. And then it's this goofball comedy... <laughs> Um, about teaching people to value the environment and about falling in love with the environment. And I guess there's something very funny about that, just as a topic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When you brought this up to me, and I haven't seen The Mermaid, I, I, I'm i going to try to get out to see it. It's, I think that it's somewhere downtown. But um, I uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure because I personally am not too up on, on Chinese film, although I would say it's not for the lack of... Um, Chinese film not coming into its own. Chinese film is huge. It's like, uh, obviously, it's a it's a country that's, you know, t- twice or three times the size of ours. Um, or I, I, I forget how math works. I don't know how many times more populous <laughs> China is than, than the United States. But, um, you know, I mean, 
there's a very, very long tradition of Chinese film. And, and one of my favorite filmmakers is Chinese, but I'm just like not that up on popular mainstream Chinese film lately. But um, but yeah, I mean, I I am up on Japanese film and it's like not really you can't really compare the two. But I always think of that as having like almost an inescapable environmental theme um, in a lot of in a lot of China, uh, in a lot of um, mainstream Japanese film. That's that's something that's present. Um, and it's interesting. I don't know. You know, I, I can't really speak to how much this has been present in, in Chinese film up until now. But uh, it's definitely interesting. You know, I mean, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it changes popular attitudes about pollution and regulations and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean the 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 way that it ends is that he decides money is not the most important thing in the world and he really comes to to value natural beauty. Like that is that is the ending of the film. Is yeah. this conversion from you know, money being the only thing that's good because he started very poor um and he saw his father be humiliated because his father was poor and he thought I'm I'm going to get money and I'm never going to be humiliated again. Which is not true. He gets humiliated multiple yeah, times. Yeah. I mean, there is something, and I think this is something that kind of gets spoken about sometimes within VR is like being able to take people or really communicate to people visually what is being lost when you have pollution and air pollution or water pollution or anything like what 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 stands to be lost. I feel like that was sort of like an underlying narrative when, when the Planet Earth films first came out. Like that was like, oh, you know, it's like eco porn, but it like makes you value what you're watching even more. And I, I think that that's true to a degree, but sometimes I feel like there's a little bit of distancing to it. I actually think that stuff like the way that you've described the mermaid stuff that like turns it into a real cultural event, I guess, is sometimes the most effective way, even if it's not the most scientific, you know. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I. I think that's interesting that it's kind of about him also um, wanting to not be humiliated again uh, after growing up poor, because that that reminds me of the the recent New Yorker article about like rich kids in in the States and in Canada, rich Chinese kids. um, That is very much about the generational divide between um, this generation of Chinese and the last. I also think that, you know, it speaks to China relative to the United States in a way, because there is another real estate developer who was born rich and has always been rich and is used to getting everything she wants. And she is the primary villain of the piece. Hmm. Yeah. Um, She's fabulous, by the way, in case you were wondering. (laughs) She is like her outfits are like Cersei level. All right. Um, But, you know, you can certainly see. A lot of the environmentalist rhetoric in the last decade has been the U.S. trying to get China to curb emissions and China turning around to the U.S. and saying, yo, like, you didn't do that when you were developing your industrial stuff. You didn't do it until after when you were already rich. So are you just trying to limit our trade? Right. Yeah. (laughs) That was a lot of it. And now China is actually more aggressive than we are in in reducing uh, pollution, and uh, at least you know at the UN level, when we, we talk about these deals, so there is something interesting that is happening here that I think that this film is part of, uh, beyond obviously the expansion of um, Chinese film, which is uh, I think becoming very very serious now. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I was reading an article about it actually in Bloomberg Business Week because I was so curious about this movie, uh, and it looks like um, China's box office has been growing thirty percent a year for the last several years. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, because I, they've gotten better at making films, and well, so and there's so are much more Chinese disposable films. income for people to to do leisure activities like go see a movie too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge part of it. Um, any any rapid increase in an economy means a tends to mean a rapid increase in the arts. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I would be curious. I don't feel like I've ever read anything really at like a person level about attitudes about environmental protection um, among like average Chinese people. I feel like you read about the UN level and you read about those like, you know, them not capitulating to the U.S.'s request to, you know, put in regulations and stuff like that. But you don't read so, so much about like what an average Chinese person thinks about the environment in their country and the level of pollution in their country. Like, is it a concern? Is it something that, you know, you're you worry about for your kids or anything? I feel like it gets very abstracted the way that we receive that information here. Um yeah, I think that's right. That's one of the reasons why I was so fascinated. <laughs> yeah. But that this environmentalist film that like Mermaid Fern Gully set in China. Yeah. Um with with it's a it's a live action film, but it's still kind of a cartoon. Um Also, but, I feel yeah. like mermaids are going to be big. Like I think I told you my favorite film at Sundance was about a mermaid and it's got very similar imagery, kind of this grimy tub with a a mermaid like lurking inside like (laughs) i feel like mermaids might be the new vampires that's my that's my uh my feeling though i the the mermaid in the lore doesn't look anything like the mermaid in the mermaid Uh, (laughs) um you know an interesting thing about that also i i just want to like another note about that film is how little it's been promoted in the U.S., there's a you know a lot of people that I follow on Twitter who cover film were talking about how you know there's just been you know usually if you're in in the entertainment media uh, sector you get you get bombarded with things about every single movie that's coming out you know from the indie lo- level on up and there was really little to no publicity for this film in the U.S. even though it has a U.S. release and like you said it's the biggest film in China. Um, and it seems like from all accounts, it's really funny and people like it a lot. Um, and it's just interesting how PR can sometimes be such a wall about that kind of stuff, like like letting us kind of be in a global dialogue about um, about the art that's important to us in different parts of the world. Well, it's truly yeah. bizarre because like, I think part of the reason probably it wasn't promoted as heavily is because Stephen Chow is not in front of the screen or in front of the camera this time. Sure. You know, he's not on screen at all. Um, but it's very much like there is an amazing sequence where she, the mermaid tries to assassinate the real estate developer. <laughs> and it backfires pretty spectacularly several times just in absolute <laughs> like Wiley E. Coyote yeah. versus the Roll Runner fashion. Okay. Like it is remarkable. It is yeah. so, so funny. And... I'm watching this, and like this doesn't need to be translated right, at yeah. all. I think <laughs> like, that's you why don't need found, subtitles. I mean, I think that's why he's found success as a filmmaker in in an international audience. It's like how you know this is like a bad example to to compare to that, but like I remember how they used to show Mr. Bean on international flights a lot because it doesn't require language. It's all slapstick and it's mostly silent, and it's kind of that sort of yeah, like Looney Tunes sort of physical humor. Um, and that, yeah, that that's something that can be shared. Very yeah, easy. absolutely. And that's something that Stephen Chow really mastered. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, part of the reason why he's so funny is yeah. because his jokes aren't necessarily reliant on wordplay. I mean, I'm sure he is making jokes that I miss because the puns don't translate. But like, 
a lot of the visual humor does. I don't know that trailer. Easily. That trailer where he's like drawing the mermaid. That's pretty oh funny. God. That's pretty funny, and that's sort of. I mean, that that is and isn't language based, but it's it's pretty it's pretty great. I mean, I'm excited to see <laughs> it's this. Delightful. Film. Yeah. Um, um, but well, yes, I would recommend this film to literally anyone. It's sweet. It's good natured. It's super super funny, and it's very engaging. Cool. Well, um, so. We're going to move from from Liz talking about movies to me talking about food, um, <laughs> food science, rather. So what I, I actually want you to tee this up for me just because there's been some news about sugary beverages this week. Well, so the soda industry is alive and well. <laughs> um, about 30 percent of U.S. adults uh, consume sugar-sweetened beverages, including soda. Um, although, of course, not diet soda because it doesn't have sugar in it. Um, or lemonade or Gatorade or any of a variety of other things, right? Yeah. But they're consuming, about about a, a third of people are consuming this stuff every single day. Mm-hmm. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, what is one Coca-Cola a day? Oh, it's a lot. It's a it, lot. It's a lot. It's a, I mean, it's a lot of sugar. But also, your body, just in case you don't know, um, doesn't process calories from drink the same way it processes calories from food. So for your brain, those calories don't count towards um, energy being sated. Yeah, like that. You don't you don't experience a lack of hunger because you drank a Coca Cola. <laughs> but it's got all those bubbles that like expand my stomach and make me feel full, right? Isn't that how it works? It's, a, it's the hot, new hot, hottest Hollywood diet. You know, get get you in Oscar Oscar ready shape. Um, but so so the, the thing is, if you dig into this report, you discover that certain groups are drinking more soda every day than than others. And so uh, for for college graduates, uh, the number is actually quite low. Um, it's it's about sixteen percent of them are regularly consuming um, sugar sweetened beverages, whereas if you look at People who didn't finish high school, it's more like 42%. Yeah. Which matches really um, closely with when you look at obesity statistics, and it turns out that wealth and education are protecting factors that make you more likely to be um, uh, neither overweight nor obese. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I used to, when I was in between years in college, I was a uh, AmeriCorps volunteer at a youth center in downtown LA. And, um, one of the things I was like, I mean, I did a stuff on the tech end there, but uh, one thing that I really liked that we did there was do like cooking classes for the moms of the kids there, because I think there's a lot of a lot of times there's one everybody's busy. I mean, people are like, oh well, I'm 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 busy because I I work and I have a, a high paying job, but like you're busy no matter what. It doesn't matter what like socioeconomic level you're at. It's it's hard to it's hard to eat well. Um, some people that means like you're going out for $15 burgers and some people that means you're buying $2 burgers for your family. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think food education is, is seriously like it's huge and I think it doesn't get as much attention as it should. And like one of the real bummers to me, just going to be very clear that this is now Liz's opinion this time, um, because this is going to be an opinion that I think a lot of people don't share. Um, but when you look at um, Michael Pollan's work, for example, it's almost exclusively written for people who are well-educated and who have money. So um, in, in the book After Carnivore's Dilemma, he sort of descri- 
describes omnivores, but yes sorry yes omnivores <laughs> dilemma um carnivores he, are fine carnivores are carnivores chill. are fine they're just gonna eat some meat <laughs> yeah it'll be great no but he he um lays out like all of the systemic things that go into why food is the way it is like when this agricultural subsidies happen all of the lobbying around nutritional guidelines all of the systemic stuff is laid out right Mm-hmm. And then you get to the part of the book where he tells you what to do. And it's not like lobby Congress. It's things like you should buy a second freezer so that you can put meat <laughs> carcasses in there. <laughs> and I was reading it. I was in New York at the time. And I was like, with what money and what room? <laughs> like, right. What are you talking about, Michael Pollan? And like, you know, living in California, I have access to fresh vegetables all the time, which rules really hard, by yeah. the way. Um but that's not the case for most people. And like when I was in Ohio in January, almost all of what I was eating was bread and cheese because that was what was available. <laughs> well, I mean, you can also be in California and, um, and not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Oh, that's um, definitely true. Because you cannot afford them or, you know, it's it's your kids will not eat them. Your kids have not been conditioned by their school lunches and the stuff that they're eating when they're with their friends and snacking. Kids have not been conditioned to be like, oh, yes, I will eat an apple. Um, cause that sounds thrilling. Yeah. Well, Why I would you eat an who... apple when you could have hot talkies? Like <laughs> I have a friend who, um, is an Oakland school teacher. And for a long time at one of her schools, she was, she would work with the kids on a community garden and they would grow their food and then they would eat it. And apparently kids like eating lettuce a lot more when they've grown it themselves. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause it's like a weird experiment. It's like a science experiment. Yeah. You grew like a fungus and now you're going to eat it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, there's, there's just a lot of like non-science stuff around eating and it's why people get so excited about new diets and like yeah. I'm on the um I, the South Beach diet so I can't have dinner with you or whatever it is well, and like there's all of these emotions and class markers and signifiers wrapped up in something that is also science well Liz um, I'm on the whole 30 diet so I can't uh, have dinner with you. Also, I'm in New York and you're in California. Um, <laughs> so tell me what the Whole30 diet is, because I don't think I've heard of this one. The Whole30 diet was uh, I, a couple friends of mine have done it. Uh, and I, when they told me about it, I was like, that's silly. That's just eating normally. Like, why would you make a thing out of it? Like, I would rather be able to have wine with all that, because one of the tenets of the Whole30 <laughs> diet is that you cannot drink um, or cannot drink alcohol. Um, and then, uh, as part of my, part of my get ripped in 2016 plan, I have a personal trainer that I see once a month and he also recommended that I do this. Um, and so I can be, I can be pressured into doing almost anything by somebody wearing like great performance fabrics and like just in like good arm definition arm muscle definition like my trainer has so I was like sure let's let's do this it can't be that hard um the whole 30 diet is one I think one thing that makes me initially not as suspicious of it as you know there have been many things weird things that I've tried in the past um this uh uh it, there's no there's nothing to buy you can buy a Whole30 book um, that kind of like has recipes and stuff in it, but you don't need to buy anything aside from food um, to, to do this. Um, it it uh, restricts grains, so you can't have rice, wheat, corn, quinoa, anything like that you can't have. Um, you so it bans happiness. 
Yes, it bans blood sugar spikes, except in the form of potatoes, which you can have. You can have as many potatoes as you want. Um, and I am not a big potato fan, so it's been very weird for me. Um, and then you cannot have added sugar. You can't have fruit. You can have fruit. They don't recommend you have a lot of fruit, but you can have fruit. And you can sweeten things with fruit if you want to. You can do some hacks that way. But um, you're not supposed to have any added sugar. Um, and then you can't drink alcohol. Um, those are the main things. Oh, and no dairy. But I already didn't eat dairy, so that wasn't a big deal for me. So that's it, basically. And there's no restriction on how much you can eat. You can have as much as you want. It's sort of just a more restrictive paleo diet, which paleo, like that word makes me want to like shrivel up into a little husk of myself. Yeah. I think that there's, (laughs) uh, I mean, I've been reading a lot of paleo blogs just because they have recipes that are compliant. Um, And it's just, it's so, it's such an arbitrary diet choice it's not like vegan where you're like okay you don't want to harm any animals or something or like i understand when i have this lifestyle that doesn't include any animal products for moral reasons or whatever whatever else paleo is just like wear five-toed shoes because it'll make you feel more like a caveman like what what is um yeah i don't know so what are your feelings what are your gut feelings on on this diet am i ruining my Uh, life p.s by the way if you didn't know there was a lawsuit about those five-toed shoes oh really the Vibram um, shoe, yeah. shoes. What was the lawsuit? Yeah, it was it was settled. Um, but apparently, if you're not used to those shoes, it can cause more frequent foot fractures. I believe it. I would not want to walk down a New York City sidewalk wearing those things. I mean, I wouldn't want to cross a street like a ripped up street. I wouldn't like it would hurt. I feel like. Uh, yeah. Um. So, I, I I'll say this, and again, this is my opinion. I can I can't really point studies. Um. But I have been writing about food studies for the last decade, and so that's sort of where I'm pulling this opinion from. There are probably a lot of diets that work for people. Like, I happen to be a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for 20 years. It's been a really great life choice for me. Mm-hmm. I know plenty of people who would never give up meat. Yeah. You know? I, I gave up meat um, for a while. I, I went back to it because meat, I decided, was a quality part of my life if I didn't have that much of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so so my initial reaction, like hearing some of the things that are banned, like if you're not missing something that feels extremely crucial for you, yeah, this does not seem like an unreasonable diet plan. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, it, it's barely it's, even a diet because you do it for 30 days. I think if anything, if it, if it was any more restrictive, it would be, it would feel really, um, I don't know. It wouldn't feel good for you or something, yeah. you know? Um, but I mean, like, you know, you see these people who get on paleo diets and lose a bunch of weight and feel a lot better and are happy. And so I don't want to, like, discourage people from, sure. yeah. from you know, doing finding a diet that is healthy for them just because I think, like, a lot of the ideology behind the paleo diet is kind of silly. Like, if it works for you, then then do that. Yeah. Um, but, but the main thing is that I don't think there is one good solution for everybody right like the best studied diet is the mediterranean diet it looks like it's pretty helpful in curbing heart disease yeah uh, maybe helpful in curbing obesity you know like that's that's like the one for which we have the best evidence but like a lot of these dietary studies are really flawed people cheat on their diets all the time oh yeah so (laughs) it's hard to tell um and, and to me like you know i 
if this daily 30 thing like helps you reevaluate how you're thinking about food and make better choices, I'm for that. The um, thing is that I feel like I am somebody who's pretty... I tend to think of myself as being pretty reasonable and enlightened when it comes to food. Like, I think I know what stuff is bad for me. And I'm also, like, not too crazy about, like, calorie counting or anything like that. So a lot of my friends are like, oh, on day five or day six, and they even say this on the guide for it on their website, like, you're going to feel like you have a hangover. Like, it's basically just from not having as much sugar as you're used to. Um, and I, it never happened for me because I don't think hmm. I actually have that much sugar normally. And so I'm just like, okay, well then that's good. The fact that I didn't have this huge, like, error body rejection reaction to it is probably a good thing. It's just good yeah. information to have. Um, I will say that I usually try to eat pretty well, but in the interest of full disclosure, I had Cheez-Its for breakfast this morning during the <laughs> section editor's meeting. <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's kind of like an omelet, I guess. <laughs> kind of. Um, but, I mean, like, you know... Part of the problem is that we do know what foods are bad for us, I think. Like some 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 amount of food education probably does benefit a lot of people, I think. But yeah. you don't look at Cheez-Its and think that's a healthy breakfast alternative. You look at the Cheez-Its and you're like, damn, this meeting is about to start. I haven't eaten breakfast. I've been working since <laughs> 7 o'clock this morning and I need to eat something so I don't kill over. Oh, look, Cheez-Its. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's I mean, for me, actually... I've become a more healthy eater the harder that I've worked. And I think that the opposite happens for some people sometimes because, you know, the more the more time crunched you are, the the easier you need the food to be. But yeah, that's that's me. I am that person. I think for me, I was like that for a while until I realized, oh, this is like cutting my productivity in half. And I hate to be Silicon Valley about it, but like that was just held very, very true for me. It's like if I have a junky breakfast and like gross crap for dinner and then uh and then have like half a bottle of wine afterwards uh I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that good of a job the next day it's just not it's it there's a very clear causal relationship there so yeah um, um well and the other piece of it too and we're both female so it applies to both of us is that there is definitely a burden that gets placed on you, especially if you're in a relationship where you're often expected to handle all the food and food related tasks. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about this. Um, um, you know, it's something that Michael Pollan, like he essentially suggests in one of his books that part of the reason why we all eat so badly is women's lib because we all stopped cooking all day and went to work. And like, he's kind of right. But, you know, at the same time, like there is a solution to that. And it's for men to do more work in yeah. their homes yeah that's I mean I haven't read any of Michael Pollan's books the only book food book like like uh I, I don't know there needs to be a name for that genre of food book because it's very I associate it very much with like a Brooklyn mommy type like vibe. oh yeah that's that's exactly who the clientele is it's like New York Times readers with yeah. lots and lots of disposable income because it's different from like a Gwyneth Paltrow cookbook or something, which feels, it doesn't feel so much like a social issue. Like Gwyneth Paltrow's books are like, here's how you can eat so you can feel like a beam of light. And <laughs> and it's it's not so political. It's not like, you know, like be aware of like how like industrial food is harming you. There's less of that agenda to it. Um, but I, the only thing I read like that was Jonathan Safran Foer's Eating, Eating Animals, which, um, I think I read when I was having 
a moment of doubt about staying vegan. (laughs) (laughs) I I read that and stayed vegan for another two years. Um, But uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's interesting from that's less um, prescriptive, that book. If I recall, like it more just gives you a picture of where your food's coming from, and which is, of course, very frequently hor- horrifying, especially when it comes to chickens and pigs. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It, it's also like there are so many bad things happening. Well, I, yeah, it's just, I, you know, I want to come back to this, though. Like I've been writing about food and food issues and obesity for a decade and I, I'm, I'm pretty well acquainted, and I still had Cheez-Its for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. There's, like, you know what I mean? There's definitely a um, a gap between knowing what's good for you and, like, how much time you have and what is available to you. Like, yeah. those are the, those are really important. And so, like, think talking thinking about things like food deserts, like places where you can't get fresh food. Yeah. Um, or, like, you know, I get so mad anytime I see you know, news stories about people who are at farmer's markets or at uh, Whole Foods and they're being like declined for their like food assistance like that. They're actually doing the right thing. That's what they should be doing. That is good food. They should be allowed to get good food. They should be punished they because they're poor. for food assistance? Oh I've never heard about this. It's like this whole thing where this whole thing where like occasionally they just don't let people who are on assistance programs. That's insane. I yeah. would be so pissed. Off. You know, I was like... <laughs> It was on EBT for a long time. I, I bought a ton of stuff at Whole Foods. Um, it's also interesting, too, because, like, the, the the food desert thing reminds me of downtown L.A. where I lived for a while. And that was sort of a, a large part of downtown L.A. was considered a food desert because there were no there was no fresh food or groceries to be had. Um, and now there's a Whole Foods there. And it's like you go from one extreme to the other really fast just because that area has been so gentrified in the past few years. And it's like. I think that kind of whiplash can sometimes be just as harmful. Um, but I don't know. Uh, in in summary, uh, I'm I'm doing a crazy diet where I have to eat all, cook all my own food, and uh, spend like two hours cooking every single day. And um, I should feel lucky that I I can afford to do that. And that's it. Yeah. Well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um. So real quick, I mean, we 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 don't have a too much time left but um one of the bigger stories that came out in entertainment at least this last week was um uh a court ruling against kesha um the pop singer who had um who had tried to get out of her contract with dr luke aka lucas godwald who's a producer a very famous producer who's produced like a bazillion top 10 hits and um was had produced both of her albums and had she uh and had also you know by by her account uh raped her sexually assaulted her belittled her um drugged her you know just every bad thing that a man in power can do to a woman who is um you know essentially just uh, what so i got pause for a second because like one of the things that i initially did not care for about kesha um is that a lot of her early songs did seem to glorify sex while blacked out. And uh-huh. now that this case has happened, I can't listen to them because <laughs> what I'm hearing is essentially someone trying to make herself feel like what happened to her is normal. And I don't know what happened to her. I don't have any personal knowledge whatsoever. 
But all I hear now is a victim telling herself the story of how what happened to her is okay when I hear those songs, and it's really upsetting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I that was a lot of the narrative around, um, around her second album, which was a little bit... Um, it had some problems. It had some some delays in coming out because she had, um, you know, written a lot of. She she writes songs. She's uh, she has a background in songwriting. She's um, she worked for a long time just doing kind of thankless uh, vocals and 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 songwriting help on in pop music before she did uh, till the world ends for Britney, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that some of that kind of apocalyptic party attitude is her own i think a lot of that does does come from her music just like kind of being able to trace her discography and the stuff that she's worked on and stuff and like that's kind of a mode that she's proved to be useful in um but the the thing that happened with her her album warrior that came out in i think at the end of 2012 um which is great uh it was also like heavily heavily um dictated by Dr. Luke what would be on it and the kinds of songs that would be on it. She, um, I think she she really wanted to get away from doing the party songs and the blackout sex dr- songs. And he uh, he strongly pushed her back in that direction. Um, there was some controversy around her song Die Young, which came out, um, unfortunately, about the same time as the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, and she distanced herself from that. And she, you know, she more or less implied that the concept of that song had not been hers. Um, it had been kind of foisted on her. Um, so it, it's it, it's it's hard with music because especially with songwriting and like artist identity and that kind of thing, um, you know, you see a long line of credits in any song and it's hard to know who did what. This is also like a huge thing in rap as well, but rap and pop usually have so many... Um, cooks in the kitchen that you're like okay who who did the beat who who suggested that lyric sometimes your name is on it because you suggested one lyric so sometimes it gets a little muddy but I think I think there was such a clear narrative around warrior that like she wanted to get away from that that style that that tone and right and she had been hadn't she been working with uh Wayne Coyne uh is that even how his name is pronounced Wayne Coyne the flaming (laughs) lips guy uh I don't I don't remember reading about anything like that there was a song of hers with him that came out called i think 2012 and Mm. it was another apocalyptic like world's ending we're gonna party but it was a lot darker and weirder yeah i mean she had so around the time pitbull or around the time timber came out she um or like shortly afterwards she went to rehab for um an eating disorder i think that was the official statement and dropped the dollar sign from her name and had like, you know, what appeared to be a pretty um, like f- like reassessment of her priorities as an artist and a person. And it seemed like pretty genuine. It seemed like we were kind of like it was interesting because we were like, OK, what's the real Kesha going to be like? You know, she has such a strong image as this sort of bratty, sing-songy rap, like pop hook girl. And um, it'd be interesting to see what the next iteration of that would be but I think you know now we can kind of go back and say okay this was like a low point for her like she was not producing the kind of content that Dr. Luke needed her to produce in order for him to like make his next big hit so he was you know being an abusive jerk basically Um, and uh, so that's sort of the story behind it what I think is interesting about it 
is how it falls in line with these um the, a recent string of um kind of outings sort of people being being taken to task oftentimes on social media about abuse and um you know we talked about this recently with the it, it, within the science community um but it's really been happening a lot within um music both at this level this sort of pop star mega producer level and um, there was a situation about a month ago involving a, a pretty influential PR guy in the indie world. It, it, Dr. Luke went on Twitter, and I think he deleted his tweets now, where he he referred to it as um, being being condemned in the court of Twitter or something like that. But there's a real power to it, and it feels like a real kind of um, paradigm shift in how 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 much we take this seriously and how how every how a community can actually you know for for better or worse change the narrative around um a situation like this a situation where somebody might have otherwise been powerless yeah i mean this is something that we're seeing over and over again where there are women who are coming forward after having been failed by the systems, like this is the recurring theme in, in the science cases, is that these women did try to file harassment claims, like a lot of them. Yeah. And they just weren't served. You know, nothing happened to the people who had, who had you know, these uh, allegations of uh, sexual harassment, even when they were found to be violating um, what is considered standard professional behavior. Like that's something we just keep seeing over and over again. And like, you know, I hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, it's tried in the court of public opinion. And it's like, well, he's not getting tried anywhere else, right. is he? Like, it's yeah. not like Kesha tried to press rape charges. She just didn't work, want to work with this yeah. guy anymore. She's like and doing that, the minimum, the minimum amount that she could for her own, you know, for her, her own, own safety. Yeah. yeah. And like, even that is considered too much. It's insane. It's like, so yes, like, <laughs> if like, if the, if the court of public opinion is the only place you can possibly get heard and have anyone pay attention to the fact that you are being being abused then that is where you go but it's always your last resort well and i mean she you know she did actually the, the, the thing that diff- that's different about the kesha situation is she did actually go to court she did you know fi- file a lawsuit um obviously that didn't work out very well um and who knows what the recourse is going to be around that the thing that's interesting to me is how little Sony, um, Sony Music, which uh, which under which she had recorded, and um, and Dr. Luke's Kimosabi imprint is is under um, is under Sony. They apparently completely missed how big that would be, how big the court of public opinion would be around this. Apparently, they thought, um, you know, we'll keep Kesha with Dr. Luke. She'll make another album. She'll sell, um, you know, whatever she needs to sell in order for us to consider it a hit. And then we'll move on. And um, one one assuming that, that that would happen, that she would even agree to that, which I think she's it seems like there's going to be a few options for her to record elsewhere somehow, although not with the same kind of promotion that she would get through Sony. Um, and, you know, that the, the idea that the 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 music community from from journalists to fans all ages men women would just be like oh cool it's another Kesha and Dr. Luke song that it wouldn't be incredibly tainted um by this entire situation or that anybody would be like oh great can't wait to hear you know even Katy Perry's new song with Dr. Luke or whatever um it just seems like such a huge 
underestimation of how much people care about this stuff now and how much people um, care when, when a woman says that she has been abused in a situation like this. I mean, do people care? Because I saw a lot of like female artists posting support for Kesha in very carefully worded ways. And then like nothing from any male artists at all. Um, well, there's one... Yeah, I mean that's a, that's another issue. They, uh, Jack Antonoff of Bleachers, Lena Dunham's boyfriend, um, uh, offered to record with her. Um, you know, sort sort of saying, you know, I have no idea where you'd be able to release this music, but I'll record with you and we can leak it or something, which is uh, something that Jameson got into. Jameson Cox got into a while ago um, over the issue of couldn't she just like record? Uh, you know. Yeah, I remember that piece. Um, and it it it's not that simple, but you know, who knows? Who knows at this point how it'd work? I um. Yeah, it, it, the the expectations of 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 female pop stars to be like these spokespeople essentially, or these um, these encapsulations of everything that a young woman should be, uh, is is incredibly imbalanced with how what we expect out of male pop stars. And there's a really great piece by Noah Berlatsky about that. I think on the establishment is the site. Um, I retweeted it. So if you if you go to my um, my Twitter feed it's somewhere this in has there. been follow Emily on Twitter episode yeah it's uh <laughs> just go to my Twitter you can see a picture of the courthouse you can see Noah Borlatsky's piece it's just like a really great resource for everything it's a really great Twitter uh, <laughs> um but uh yeah I mean we don't we don't uh we don't ask ourselves oh why, why hasn't Chris Martin weighed in you know or why hasn't uh Bruno Mars or Justin Bieber weighed in that's not something that we ask ourselves We're why like, hasn't Max Martin weighed in oh for real like like that's what I want to know how long has Max Martin known about this like did he like is this like I'm sure he's gonna be like oh well I've never seen the behavior and this is a total shock to me yeah but like you gotta you kind of feel like all of these other guys who like he's been working with for from all this time like they probably know something yeah I mean it's it's sort of remarkable how much you can kind of uh push that out of your awareness though if you don't want it to be true I mean even in the case of you know I, I talked to John Seabrook a few, a few a couple months ago who wrote The Song Machine um which is a great book about pop music um and he spends a lot of time with Dr. Luke um both talking about Dr. Luke and and spending time at Dr. Luke's house and studio um, when he is there recording with Becky G, who's like kind of his newest protege. Um, and this is and he was reporting around the time that um, at, that the lawsuit first came out. And, you know, this was sort of in the air. And, you know, even Seabrook is like, well, you know, I, I there's no there's no real proof of any of this happening. And uh, and he seemed like a nice enough guy to me. Uh, and, you know, if you don't if you don't want that unpleasant truth to be possible, you'll find all sorts of ways to steer around it and make it not true. Um, I think there's been a lot of maybe not official on the record corroboration of this sort of a behavior from him happening with other women. Um uh, Bonnie McKee has alluded heavily to it. Bonnie McKee is a, another songwriter who he worked with for a long time. Who she was, she's one of these songwriters who like wanted to have a solo career, wanted to, like, and was never oh like been, Esther Bloom, yeah, um, and uh, was never considered you know market friendly enough to do that. But she's written, you know, she wrote like half of Katy Perry's songs and worked with Dr. Luke for a really long time, and has alluded to the fact that he was um, at least emotionally abusive to her. Um, a lot of a lot of people that he's um, Becky G herself has said um, kind of alluded to the fact that he would call her fat and tell her that she needed to lose weight. So, you know, it's not 
in a vacuum. There's 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 reason to believe that this is a pattern of behavior and that it wasn't just Kesha who was being hurt by this, um, which makes her allegations all the more believable. I mean, for me, if you're if you're primed to believe women, I mean, that. that (laughs) Well, I mean, to me, it makes Sony's behavior a lot more troubling because like even if and I'm just I'm going to I don't again. I'm not going to say that Kesha's lying because I don't think she would be because why would you lie about this when you can just destroy your entire career by... Oh, yeah. You you know? But but let's say she is. And you throw her the bone of, like, letting her out of that contract to work with whoever she wants to work with. Um, How are you protecting your other artists from this person? Like, how... how, Like, because it's not like she's... She's just the most powerful and most famous one that he works with, right? No, no, Katy Perry is. Oh, um, really? Yeah, I would say she's definitely the the biggest seller, and she is one person who hasn't said anything. But again, I don't want to be like, oh, she's not on the Kimosabe label, is she? No, no, but she... um, But he has written a bunch of her songs like he did pretty much Ah. all teenage dream like all the big Katy perry songs he wrote um yeah so i mean like you know if you if you've got this guy in charge of the label you know that he's in charge of a bunch of artists many of whom are young and female you know that one of your young female artists says yo this guy drugged and abused me yeah how do you not remove him Well, I like mean, just... <laughs> that, that's what happens when you all you care about is a bottom line and that, that, that hits get made. And, and Dr. Luke makes the hits in the narrative in the music industry. Uh, Kesha doesn't make the hits. Kesha sings the hits. Uh, Becky G sings the hits. Even Katy Perry sings the hits. She does not make the hits. And there's mm. a very, very long history of that kind of gender balance in pop music that you've got. The, the <laughs> What are you saying? I just said Phil Spector in like oh, the most God, like, yes. theremin-like voice I could. Yeah, oh, bring in the Phil Spector. We need to, like a sound cue, Phil Spector, like <laughs> voice. Yeah, a wall totally. of sound followed by a gunshot, Phil Spector. Yeah, it's um, there's that. There's like, I mean, there's even situations, uh, even from the managerial standpoint, non-producer. But I think, I think, and I, I talked about this in a, I was talking about this in the office a little while ago. I have this gut feeling that there is something particular about pop music that lends itself to this kind of personality. And I don't know what it is necessarily, um, but there's and there's something about it that's different from being like a megalomaniac producer or director in film um, or, you know, a, a crazy actor or something like that. There's something about this industry where a lot of the work is done in these sort of in a booth essentially (laughs) you're in a cabin in the woods essentially with um with a guy who is powerful and influential and um is there to make money you are there to make money off of each other but um there is definitely a power imbalance as far as who is valued more in the industry as a whole um, you know, Max this Martin sounds like a great premise for a horror movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean Max Martin has been around for decades now at this point, and all of the people that he's worked with have come and gone. So, you know, it stands to reason that he's more valuable for uh, for a record label who's only looking at a bottom line and not looking at this like the human aspect of the people that they're working with. So it's um. It's it's interesting to see how this is going to shake out. I think there's been so much weird. Um, there's been a lot of anger and 
uh, hostility and snark aimed at like everybody but Sony. I th- there's been plenty aimed at Sony, but not as much as there has been at like Taylor Swift, who, you know, volunteered to pay two hundred fifty thousand dollars to cover Kesha's legal fees. Well, the thing is, I expect Sony to be evil because it's a corporation, and they'll do literally anything in pursuit of the bottom line. The person who really pisses me off is the judge. Yeah. <laughs> who's a woman who's like, also. Who's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it would be an undue burden yeah. for their bottom line. So this person's humanity is negated. Also, Bangs, gavel. Th- one of her things is that this doesn't look any different from a typical popular recording contract at a major label. Well, yeah, because most of those contracts are insane and like borderline illegal. Like we know these stories by now. We know like it's been said that Kesha's contract with with Dr. Luke and with Sony is worse than what uh, Backstreet Boys had with Lou Pearlman, which is like notoriously horrible. They didn't make any money. And um, and same with like TLC. Like this is not unprecedented. Like artists just getting completely dicked over. because the 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 producer, the creator, the 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 mastermind behind the money maker is is valued much more than they are. Um, anyway, if you want to buy Emily's of my horror movie about what happens <laughs> when you go to the woods to record with a well-known famous producer who is in no way based upon Dr. Luke. <laughs> um, you know, you know how to find us. I said um, the woods. I really meant Malibu, um, but <laughs> it's the same thing, really. <laughs> Beachfront property, um, you know, the ocean is very large. Um, the creeping <laughs> horror of California. Um, well, I I think that about does it for us. Um, I, I want to thank our producer Andrew Marino for um, for making this episode happen because hopefully you won't be able to tell that it was but a very been, tricky recording process. We've been having some technical difficulties <laughs> and Andrew has been an absolute champ. So thank he you, Andrew. Um, so yeah, be sure to subscribe to us if you have not already. If you're just like listening to this because you clicked on a link and um, I don't know, in your Feedly or something, um, do go over to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast and leave a comment. Leave or a review. On SoundCloud. SoundCloud is also okay. We're on SoundCloud. Fine. For as long as SoundCloud still exists, we are on SoundCloud. Um, for <laughs> GSP at both. You can also follow me on Twitter as very heavily advertised in this in this episode <laughs> at Emily Oshita. Uh, I'm at Ms. Lopato, MS Lopato. I'm not as much fun as Emily, I'm warning you now. But you there need to are get some... more cat photos. Yeah, you you definitely got me beat on the cat front. Um and I am also going to be on uh, the Vergecast in like oh, 30 minutes. Uh, so <laughs> it'll have already happened by the time you're listening to this. But I'm on double podcast this week. Oscars <laughs> weekend, baby. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon. <laughs>